Welcome to the Recovery Lab podcast. We're glad you were able to join us. Recovery Lab hopes to destigmatize addiction and normalize recovery. Our platform provides an avenue to share the many stories of those that have recovered from addiction, providing for the listener the most basic antidote to addiction. Hope. All right, everybody, we're back. This is episode 45 45 of the Recovery Lab podcast series. I'm Drew Hassan. I'm Daniel Anderson. We are the Recovery Lab. We're joined today by none other than Ken Seeley of Intervention Fame. Ken, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Man, so glad you could join us this afternoon. Well, it's afternoon here, but I think it's morning where you are, right? Or morning-ish. It's not... 9 a.m. 9 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> so crazy. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so, so much for, for joining us today. It's really, really awesome. It really is. It really is. Well, look, we we just mentioned to Ken how we're kind of going to flip-flop between uh, Ken's professional positions and questions about that, and then Ken, just a guy that's in recovery that likes to help people. Uh, how How did you get started doing intervention work? What drove you to it? Um, I had 10 years clean and sober at the time. And, um, you know, I was doing sober jobs. Like when I first got sober, I did medical billing. And then I went into home health care. And I would take care of elderlies at their home. And um, did that for a few years. Then I ran a nonprofit uh, a drug and alcohol center where they had like 101 12-step meetings. Um and uh, I was the manager of that facility and collect the rents and pay the bills and all of that, uh, organized fundraisers for the center. Um, then I went into marketing, um, just sober jobs, and then even ended up as a waiter. Um, and then I uh, realized, you know, I was like, you know, nothing's bringing me happiness in my spirit, in my soul. Right. And, um, and the only thing that really you know, triggered that switch that got me excited um, was helping other people get into recovery. And it was like, you know, I I knew like my life has changed drastically. Like, you know, I was living in my nightmares every day, you know, like, oh my God, here it comes again. I mean, I remember going to work and this woman would put, um, (laughs) she would put the 20 questions, you know, the Alcoholics Anonymous questions on my desk. And at first I would answer them and be like, oh, this is garbage. And then, you know, then I would see it on my desk and I just throw it away. What the fuck is wrong with these people? <laughs> right. <laughs> All up in my business. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. But that was before I got sober. But, um, but then, you know, I, I, that spark of knowing living where I was there and living where I was in recovery, you know, um, people's lives could be so much better. And um, that spark sat within me and I wanted to help other people. And, you know, talking on the phone at treatment centers and getting people to come into treatment. But the part that really broke my heart is, you know, families, right? The addict is numb, right? When they're out there using, they're on their drugs or drinking or whatever. They're not really coherent to, to, to the world. And the family members are, suffering in pain without any painkillers right and 
my heart really went out to them. Like, how do you support them and get their loved one into treatment? And that's when I really, you know, said this, this is what I want to do. I want to help these family members get their loved ones back and, and stop that suffering out there. Well, you know, you're the second interventionist that we've had now on the podcast. And the thing that struck me about the first one was how uh, all-encompassing the approach was to not just helping the addict find their way into treatment, although that's pretty much the ultimate goal, but not, not too far below that is helping the family cope with the feelings they have and probably some of the sicknesses, behavioral sicknesses they've developed in furtherance of, you know, enabling their their loved one or their addict yeah i think one one of the things that um i i heard you say uh i don't remember when it was but something to the effect that uh the the family members are linked together and when there's a break in the link um that that person is going to go through those so it's it's important to be on a on a unified front and that's where interventions really really shine is it it because you're absolutely right it's the 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 condition of the alcoholic or addict and and um, an active addiction is. I mean, we were completely numb, completely numb to everything that was surrounding us. So, the, it's so beautiful that interventionists come in and and the the main one of the main aspects is the education of the family and let them know that they're not alone and that that there is help. But we all have to be unified on a on a uh, common front. And you know, it was just it was. I, I heard you say that and there was something about it that just really, really stuck with me because if, you know, it, that, that weakest link is, is always going to be where that person, you know, slips through and that could be an aunt that, you know, really feels bad for, you know, her nephew or whatever. And if everybody, you know, everybody else is strong and that, that aunt is weak, then a person's going to have a hard, that's harder a good time. point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I know you had Ruth Ann Rigby on. I love yeah. her. Mm-hmm. Right. We love Ruth Ann. And, yeah, she's uh, incredible. Absolutely incredible. Isn't she amazing? I just love her. Yeah. And um, we, you know, we had a dear friend, you know, John Southworth, and the, and he was, you know, a mentor of mine. I could say that now that he's dead, but when he was alive, I would never tell him that. Okay. <laughs> it was more competition. <laughs> but we were, he was a real mentor of mine and, you know, was doing this for years before he passed away and a really good friend also. And um, he would explain it as a corral, like a bunch of family members holding hands and you have a wild horse in the middle of you. And if one person drops their hand, the horse goes out and runs and, you, and it won't calm down. Right. But if all of you hold your hands tight, then it'll finally stop and slow down and get to process what's happening. But the minute that one person lets their hand down, and that's the codependency. And, and right. even though the family that drops their hand, they think that they're loving them. They think that they're supporting them by giving them that money, by giving them a place to live, by giving, you know, softening that rock bottom. They think that they're helping them, but in all reality, they're letting them go again. And now we got to start over. Nice. Now we either got to get that person out or get that person healthy and then start the corral again and get everybody unified. Exactly. That other guy that was on said, you know, if you're, if you're an active addiction and you're mad at one of your loved ones, then they're probably not enabling you. Right. You know, that we've all yeah. seen that story before. 
Well, look, tell us if if you if you could give because uh, one thing from doing the podcast that I've learned is that the information that's available out there to help people isn't worth a damn if people don't know how to get to it. If we have a listener that is thinking about contemplating uh, seeking out the assistance of an interventionist or even wants to learn a little bit more about it, where would they go to find that information? Um, you, you know, we have our website that has a lot of information on it, intervention911.com. You know, that we've been doing these for over 20 years. And, um, you know, I think 23 years, 22 years now. And, um, and you know, it's really important because, like, when you look at it, right, the, the last statistic we saw years ago was 25 million addicts out there in this country, in the U.S. alone. So if you think of it, and you're putting that corral around, you know, together, at least each person has one or two people that are really close to them. But imagine having five people that are close to them. So now five times 25 million, that's how many people are really suffering from this addiction. And the number one symptom for the person that has the disease <coughs> is denial. So they're not going to see through that they have a problem. That's not what they do. They, they're, they're still trying to manipulate it and figure it out. I call it the addict's hustle right? They're trying to figure it out and still in denial of even having the disease of addiction. So it's almost impossible for them to see it. And every single person in all the years that I've been sober, it's been a situation from the outside that motivated them internally to want to change. Every single person. So, you know, I still go to my home group out here in Hawaii. It's called TYG. Thank you, God. You know, every morning at 730 on the beach. And, you know, when you go to a meeting and you hear people share about their story, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now, when you listen to what happened, what was that thing that happened? Because a lot of people say, oh, Ken, interventions don't work. I didn't need an intervention. And then I'm like, all right, tell me your story. What happened? And when they tell you what happened, that was their intervention. It, if it was spiritual, if it was a crisis, if they got, for me, I got fired from my job, you know, something happened to them that said, I don't want to live this way anymore. Some crisis happened and they didn't get engaged. They didn't get a promotion. They didn't just go on a nice family trip. None of that stuff gets people sober. It's some crisis that happens in our lives that shifts our being and gets us to have this new awareness that says, I don't want to live this way anymore. Given the length of time that you've been doing intervention work, and I guess this is more a can the man question, what patterns have you picked up on? What uh, themes seem to be recurrent to you? Uh, that, that may surprise you or that have surprised you? Well, I think, you know, um, July 14th, I'll celebrate 34 years sober. So congratulations. Uh, congratulations. That's awesome. Thanks. Hopefully, right? God willing, as we all know. Sure. But, it, you know, in the 34 years, you know, it was completely different back then. You know, going to treatment was really just about, you know, taking a break from using and, 
like the old Hazleton model used to be just teaching people in that 30 days that you have to be in a program of recovery if you're going to make it, make it out alive. So that's really all it was, is stabilizing detox and understanding, like, if you really want to fight this, you're going to have to be a part of some kind of program. And so, you know, now they realize, you know, in the years that, that have gone on that, you know, and with with the medicine that and the psychiatrists and the therapists and all the work that has been going on in the last 34 years, they're seeing that, you know, I love this because I used to always say, I've never had any trauma. I never had any trauma, but it's right. rooted in some form of trauma, right? The addiction is rooted in some form of trauma. And I would be like, there's no way, you know, I had a healthy upbringing. I, you know, I went to school, you know, we went camping in the summers. We did snowmobiling in the winters. I was never raped. I was never physically abused, mentally abused. You know, you know where, where is that trauma that they keep talking about? And what the difference is today is they're able to, that I wasn't able to identify when I got sober, but what they're able to do now is identify where that trauma rooted from. So from four to 14, yes, my home life was pretty, you know, I, I, you know normal. There is no normal, but comfortable. Like I would, you know, it was good. Stable. You know, my dad, right? Was, right? My dad was a fireman. He, you know, my mom stayed at home as we were growing up until we got to junior school. And, you know, so there was nothing really tra dramatic or traumatic that happened. But what happened is I was very effeminate as a kid from four to 14. And so the minute I walked out my door, I was bullied. So that's a form of trauma that I didn't even realize. I didn't even recognize it. You know, it was like, I don't know if you guys remember, but standing in line, you know, in, in gym and in PT, and then you stand in line and they're picking who's on your team. And I was always the last one picked. I was sweating because nobody wanted me on their team. You know, I was always made fun of the minute I got on the bus in the morning and, you know, teased the whole time. So every day it was like the way it was explained as I learned about trauma is it was like going out in the military as a four-year-old and being on the front lines of a war. That four-year-old didn't realize, you know, today am I going to die? Today is it going to be the end? Today is because you create this, this insanity in your head, like, oh, my God, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. I remember getting physically sick and not being able to go to school sometimes because of the fear, that anxiety. So it created all of that. And from 10 years of my life, creating that anxiety and fear to walk out my front door, that's the form of trauma that was rooted in my addiction. Yeah, so it's totally possible. I mean, and I, I think that's a really, really fantastic point um, for our, our listeners and viewers is um, trauma, you, you don't have to be, you don't have to have been beaten. You don't have to Some have acute. Been, right, right, right. Some sort of horrific massive thing in order for uh, for to become an alcoholic or an addict, you know, it can be small, subtle things. I, 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 I'm, I'm very much alike you in the fact that, um, you know, other than, um, you know, my adoption when I was three days old, I really, my, my upbringing, up, upbringing was, was very wonderful. I mean, I had loving parents, um, who did everything in the world 
to, to ensure that we felt loved and appreciated and cared for. Uh, but what I found um, when, when I got sober was through work with the therapists and in groups is that the, um, the, the trauma that I experienced personally was that, that adoption. The, I, from, from that point on, I have always had this over this, this feeling that I'm not good enough because if my birth mother didn't want me, how could anyone possibly love me? So, but I, I didn't see that as trauma because, you know, I mean, there are people out there that have it 1 million times worse than me and they don't complain at all. So how am I going to sit here and complain and, and about how I was, I was adopted into a wonderful loving family, you know? So it took me some time to, to really wrap to my get head that around, perspective, right? That, that, that was trauma. And now that doesn't define me today. That doesn't, what, what I learned from that is, is I, I learned a tremendous amount of uh, compassion and love for myself. Not only that, but, I did have to do a lot of work with the codependency and the, the, the connection issues because I was, I was finding a hard time and still to this day can have a hard time with, with making a connection with someone, you know, in a, in a very close, you know, with loved ones, because deep down I am, there is that fear that they're going to abandon me just like that happened. But again, today that doesn't define who I am. And it, it actually has helped me to, to be able to, be the person that I am today through learning how to deal with those feelings. And today I genuinely like that person. So I, I can't, I can't in all good conscience look back and say that I regret anything because everything in my life has led to who I am today. And that person is a genuine, loving, kind person. So I really can't, I can't be angry about anything that happened in my past, but I do, I, I, I relate with you a great deal about that, that we don't have to have, you don't have to be hit upside the head with a, with a robber or, you know, raped or whatever in order to experience trauma. Trauma comes in all sorts of different shapes, sizes, and forms. Yep. It's interesting to me to be able to talk to somebody a little more on the front lines of, of the, the treatment center world it's been a minute since I've been to treatment and although I've been to enough of them, you'd think I would know the answers to all these questions, but how did treatment centers help people balance between recognizing these traumas and also having them take personal responsibility, right? Not hop, not hop into victim mode. Yeah. Like, you know, woe is me? Um, you know, yeah. Where, what is, how is that? How do treatment centers balance that out? Well, I know that a lot of them, you know, I, I, at our treatment center, we have a treatment center also in Palm Springs, California, and we do, uh, the trauma eggs. And are you guys familiar with trauma? eggs? I'm not, I am not. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, please. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I was trained as a trauma professional and um, Eric is as a, you know, trauma therapist that, you know, doing a trauma egg, you start out with your youngest traumatic experience. What happened to you? And I remember mine, you know, I, I, you know, I don't remember the details, but I remember when my sister was born, I was two years old. I was like, I don't need somebody else to take away my attention. Right. right, right. <laughs> it's like I'll get all, I got all this attention on me. What do you mean getting somebody bringing somebody else in here? So, you know, that trauma that you remember and then falling out of a car, you know, on the way to the fire station to pick up my dad's check, you know, you write 
you remember all these traumas that happened to you and then going to kindergarten and hiding under a desk until it was time to go home and then going finally being invited to somebody's birthday party at school and being so excited and going shopping with your mom to get the gift and then you get there and nobody pays attention to you and any toy that you go play with everybody goes and plays with something else you know those traumas that happen you you put them on from from age you know two on is whatever you could remember to your current age and instead of writing it out in an egg you draw a circle of an egg and then you um draw pictures of what what it looked like you know you draw pictures of what how it felt and what you experienced because it uses the other side of your brain than writing it out so you draw the picture of it and then what you start realizing is you start looking at how that two-year-old, four-year-old, six-year-old started creating traits and, and patterns that protect that little kid to keep them safe. Because that kid is scared to death of the world, but now it creates things to, to put, you know, as most people here, it put walls up. Right? right? Those walls start getting built around you. So people can't get to know who you really are because of those experiences that you have had. And then you see where you are in current age and you're like, oh my God, I'm still doing this. Right. And then you realize that's a trauma response. That's not really the what happened. That's a trauma response so even now, like you said, if I feel like somebody is cutting me out of something, I might, you know, get upset about it and then realize like, oh, no, that's that little kid's trauma response. That's not reality of what's happening. But because it's hard, it's in the blueprint of my brain, it's never going to change. Right. I, I right. can't erase and delete my brain of my past experiences. So in that blueprint that was developed as a child, it's always going to be there. The choice as an adult and somebody in recovery is how do I respond to it instead of reacting to it? Right. And that's, that's one of the things that I, I live by today is, you know, I, I, I heard this in a meeting. Actually, my dad's sponsor, uh, my dad is also in recovery, and his sponsor said it in a meeting that I heard down the line afterwards Um but he said, my biggest problem today, and I believe in this 100%, my biggest problem today is not my biggest problem. My biggest problem today is how I react to my biggest problem. And that's the, the main thing for me was I was so reactionary when I was in active addiction yeah. and still can be that way today, but obviously much, much better at it today. But I was so, I was primed to react to everything any sort of uncomfortable situation, I would I would act immediately to try to fix that situation to where I was comfortable. Whether whether that took drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever, it doesn't matter. If it would make me, if I thought it would make me feel better, I was willing to give it a shot. And it, things didn't it, that didn't work out too great for me. Never does. Never does. Never does. <laughs> Never does. Yeah, that goes. That goes back to your original question, right? That what's the difference now in treatment from, you know, 33 years ago. Now we're able to identify those things, you know, help people do a trauma egg, help them get that awareness. Like you just, you know, once you, you, you have the insight and the awareness of it, 
you're never going to stop the rest. And that's why I still go to meetings, right? Is it's never going to change. It's always going to be a part of my being of who I am as a person. But what I can do is have an awareness about it and have an acknowledgement that, okay, that choice of reacting doesn't work. It doesn't give me the result I want. So now let me process it and let me respond. And right. that's, and it, I'll, I'm, I'm never going to be perfect. I'm never going to be good at it. I'm never going to be on point with it, but at least I hear other people sharing about it in meetings. And when I hear them share about it and say, oh my God, that just happened to me yesterday. I got to go make an amends to that person. Shit. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, damn it. <laughs> Instead of just blowing it over, because there's only so many times you could blow it over before it creates this you know disease within us right. you know it just starts even though i'm not drinking and using it's still the disease is in my brain it's still going to gather this this sickness and create insanity right. and the only one that goes crazy is not well i guess the people around me go crazy but <laughs> <laughs> when they see me going crazy like oh god here it goes again <laughs> so they but, appreciate me going to meetings. Yeah, well, and I'm, I'm sure that those family members that you've worked with are, you know, are appreciative to hear some of these insights. Because I can only imagine that if you're the parent of someone suffering from an addiction, you know, you've we're all a little bit narcissistic and we're all a little bit self-centered and egotistical, and we all think that everything, you know, that surely they think this is my fault. This is a shortcoming on my part. That if I had only, if I didn't do this, then this wouldn't have happened. And to help the family learn that you didn't cause this, right? You know, it's not your fault per se. I mean, yeah, I mean, I provided I, you're not burning little Johnny with cigarettes or something horrible like that. But right, uh, what do you find the most rewarding out of doing the work that you do? And if there's a particular case. I've got one in mind of somebody uh, from the show, but uh, what has been the, tell us something rewarding about doing the intervention work. Um, you know, one of my favorite episodes was the Brett episode. I don't even know if it's out anymore, but he ended up, um, you know, it, he, he fought us, right? He fought really, really hard. You know, um, I like the hard ones that fight because the harder they fight, you know, they're resisting it. But when they do let go, you know, and they do surrender, it's like that huge surrender. Like sometimes the people just say, yeah, I'll go. You know, it's just a manipulation tactic to say, okay, I'll go just to get out of this situation that I'm in in this room. But he fought us and fought us. I remember it was like, you know, it was humid in Florida and it was hot out and we're chasing him for like two miles in the heat as he's walking down the street and, you know, we're getting in and out of the van and taking turns, family members, me, you know, walking down the street with them, trying to convince them. We go to his apartment. We know he has guns. So we want to, you know, get there before he does and get the guns out of the house. So he doesn't harm himself or hurt, hurt somebody else. So, I mean, it was a really dramatic um, intervention process. And, um, Finally, I, it was in Florida. I don't know if you, you guys know about the Marchman Act in Florida. Yes. Yep. So we, we told them about, hey, you don't want to go to California to this great treatment center. We'll just get the Marchman Act in place. And, we'll, you know, we'll just, 
you know, get a therapist here and have you locked up against your will. And, you, you know, you'll have to do it through the court system and do it in an indigent facility. We don't care how you get sober. We just care that you do. Right. And so a friend came over and he says, yeah, he doesn't believe you. I said, Google it. Look it up right now. And he, they looked it up and he finally surrendered, you know, after hours and hours of hours of this, you know, really hard day. And he gets to treatment and he says, I'm afraid to go home, you know? And I love that when people say that I'm afraid to go home because that tells me that they got this, you know, they're, 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 they're sufficient appreciation of their problem. Yeah. Right. It's like, Oh my God, this is like music to my ears. So I'm like, Oh my God, this is such a great, you know, um, story because he fought it. He realized he couldn't get out. There was no other way like i call it the addict's hustle right remember you know we we find another hustle and he realized his hustle was over there's no other way he surrendered to the process and um he goes i want to find sober living out here in california so he was at hope by the sea we were looking for sober living um he had some trouble eating food that week so he you know they took him to the doctor and they found stage four cancer and throat cancer. Mm. And it was horrible. So he went home and spent the last, you know, days or weeks with his family. And, you know, his son at the end of the episode said, at least my dad picked us over his drinking. And my dad was at my last baseball game. You know, he was like, he, he got, you know, the kid didn't have to live up with that trauma. Like you were just saying, right. Your family gave you up. Like my dad gave, you know, picked alcohol over me. That kid got to realize his dad picked him over the alcohol. It was amazing right before he died. What a gift he gave his family. Absolutely. Right. Is it that surely those things have to, I mean, I know we all have one day at a time, right. And we, you know, we're not, we're not gifted more than what we have right in front of us, but surely having those kinds of experiences to draw on has to be quite the impetus for you to keep doing the work you do. Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny because, you know, I, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I'm like, I just turned 60. I'm like, I'm ready to give up. I'm tired. I'm done. Pass the torch. (laughs) I, I, I did. I did my time. And, you know, and what I'm really focused on now is helping people get their education to become interventionist and drug and alcohol counselors. Um, Because like I said, when I was, you know, you know, four to 14, I was always bullied. And in third grade, you know, I would fantasize of living this different life. And I wasn't paying attention in school. So, and, and have being, you know, back then that he, diagnose it properly, but I was dyslexic. You know, I would read something and it wouldn't make sense to me. And so I couldn't really read in third grade. So they failed me in third grade. So the message to me was, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're a piece of crap. So that added to the trauma that just kept building up that you can never become anything. You're never going to reach your goal. You're never going to, you know, become who you want to. And, you know, at, in, in uh, first grade, I even, I found it. My sister saved it in her attic. I can't believe, because my sister, you know, lives in the house that we grew up in. And she found it in her attic and she sent it to me to we are in Hawaii. 
But when I was in uh, first grade, I drew a picture. And what do you want to be when you grow up? Even at, in first grade, I said a doctor. And the teacher wrote down, he wants to be a doctor. And I had a picture of a doctor, you know, with a white coat on and to help others. And my dream was taken away because society told me I wasn't good enough. You know, I failed third grade. You're not smart enough. You know, and even when I finished high school, they were like, you barely made it out of high school. You'll never be able to go to college. So I went into the military, into the Air Force. And so I really want to give people that gift that they can start school at any age and, you know, start off as a drug and alcohol counselor, you know, get in there and help people. Because when I went on unemployment, when I got sober, they said, you could be a dental hygiene, you could be a medical biller, you could be, you know, a home health aide. They, they trained you to get certified in one of these, air, these trade schools. And I picked a home health aide, but, you know, if they would have said a drug and alcohol counselor, I would have jumped on that. You know, I just got sober and now we could do that. Now we have a course that you could do, you know, four to six months on your self pace to do it at home by yourself, you know, without having to go to class, you do it all online. Um, we have that. And I want to, I want to show people like you could do this, you know, and that's really where my, my excitement is right now. That's where my drive is, is because, you know, for all those years, I still didn't believe in myself until I had 10 years sober and I found, you know, the spark again, but it wasn't about going back to school. It was helping people get into recovery. And I want to give people that spark, like no matter what society told you, you could start this and in four to six months, you could be a drug and alcohol counselor. And then once they realize they could do that, then they could say, okay, I could take baby steps and do night school, you know, and get their, their bachelor's and master's and move forward in their, in, in their careers. Oh, look, I absolutely think that is the number one thing that afflicts people in recovery. And it's probably the single largest impediment to continued recovery. And that is a lack of hope. I just yep. don't think I am worth the effort. Nothing is going to be different this time. It isn't worth trying. Right. That you're stuck in this endless cycle of Groundhog Day. You know, every day is the same. No matter what I do, there's, it's not going to impact the future. So I think that's great. I think that's great. Look, I do have one one last question. Well, maybe not last question, but what happened at 14? Did you take... Uh, uh, jiu-jitsu lessons or something did you take a boxing class what 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 helped stop that yeah what what the what bullying. was the pivot uh at 14 hello <laughs> don't i know aren't i talking to the right people i found drugs and alcohol ah, there we go okay okay <laughs> i was invincible and then there I we go a, right i became an acid and mescaline dealer in high school and selling at black beauties and acid mescaline and you know then i became popular because i was a drug dealer. i bet you did <laughs> ken's got that medicine <laughs> ken'll fix it exactly everybody wanted to be my friend then yeah. it's like oh you're handing out business cards yeah, you're on homemade <laughs> prescription pad 
That's awesome. And I didn't care, right? You don't right. care. You, when you're drunk, you don't give a shit what people. At Jerry care. Garcia Medical School. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, drugs and alcohol worked until they didn't. Do you mind telling yep. us a little bit about? Because I mean, drugs and alcohol. I mean, I, I did read somewhere that uh, meth was. Uh, did you? Hop on the meth train there for a little while. Oh yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, that that was time. my that was my drug of choice, uh, and and it did it. It worked beautifully. It, it feels good. Yeah, it feels amazing. <laughs> so my question is, obviously there there was a time there was a point where you realized, uh oh, this is not working anymore. Is that time in your life a, a, a very vivid time, or was that more of a gradual coming to the realization that hey, this is not. This is not as effective at healing my pain as it once was, and I may have to actually do something different in, in order to survive getting through this. Was there a particular time in your life that, that represented that shift, or was it just a gradual type thing for you? Yeah, no, I, I don't think there is that, you know, when you're in early recovery. There's not even awareness about that, right? It's more about um, still being able, like from 14 to I got sober at 26, right? So that 12 years, that worked for me. It worked, you know, it numbed the pain of people not liking me. It numbed the pain of not being good enough. It numbed the pain that you're stupid, you're not smart enough. I mean, like I said, I went into the Air Force and then I got kicked out for smoking hash. Yeah, know, that, that, that'll do it. <laughs> a year and a half later. So again, it's it's more shit thrown on me. Like you're a piece of crap. You're not good enough. You're never going to amount to anything. You can't even make it in the Air Force. Right. <clears throat> so all those tapes playing in my head constantly. And so to tell me like drinking and drugging isn't going to be the solution. It was like, you know, it, it was like, don't it's like taking away my legs to walk. It's like, you can't tell me that. This is the only thing that does work. It's the only thing that got me out of that pain from four to 14. And now you're telling me it doesn't work. It was like taking away my oxygen, right? It's like, I can't breathe if you try to take away my drugs and alcohol. So it didn't make sense until, you know, when I, I checked into treatment because Again, I had the addict's hustle. I didn't want to get sober. You know, I, I wanted to get the heat off. All right. With, yeah, I wanted the heat off, right? I wanted, you know, I just got fired from my job. I was like, you know, I remember before I got sober, I went to AA for four years and it didn't work. I even, you know, because I said, you know, this isn't working. You know, I don't feel any better not using. You know, um, I, I, I even joined this one group in Hollywood. It was, uh, a 12 step program, not to be gay anymore as a gay male. Right. I was like, that's, what's wrong with me. I'm not supposed to be gay. I need to join this other group. So I joined that group and I was, you know, trying not to be gay. And I was like, you know, this doesn't feel right. You know, something, I was just trying to search anywhere to figure it out, but stop using didn't work. Not being gay didn't work. None of these things were working for me. So I was like, what is it? And so um, when I went to treatment, I still had the addict's hustle. I was still saying to myself, um, you know, well, disability 
pay, unemployment will start paying after disability. So if I go to treatment, I could get on disability. It pays a little bit more than unemployment. Then I could go on employment and then I get the whole six months of unemployment. So it was still of a manipulation. I didn't go to treatment to get sober. Right. You know, that didn't work. That, that didn't work. And my psychiatrist said, you know, I, you know, I got sober in 1989 and in the gay community, a lot of my friends were dying of AIDS. Right. And I was 130 pounds. Now I'm um, 215, 200, you know, so I was 130 pounds, like not, what is that? 95 pounds, not 85 pounds more or less. And, you know, I thought I was dying of AIDS. I was like, all my friends are dying of AIDS. I'm dying of AIDS. I, you know, what's the sense in stopping? And so my doctor did blood work and he said, um, three days later, it came back and he said, um, you don't have, AIDS or HIV or any of that, but you have a disease that's going to kill you faster than HIV or AIDS. You'd be lucky if you had HIV or AIDS because your disease is, you're pretty close to death. And that ego that you're talking about, right? That you said earlier, I was like, oh, doctor, what is it? I got a different, a different disease than everybody else. What is it? And I'm looking at him like, oh my God, finally the answer. It's not the gay, it's not the alcohol. And he goes, you're a drug addict junkie, <laughs> alcoholic. I was like, what? That's not a disease. Where'd you get your medical degree? <laughs> and that's when it clicked for me. I was like, my friends are fighting for their lives. Nothing's working. All I have to do is go into recovery and go to meetings and I don't have to die. I mean, it, the, the light bulb turned on and then I became AA squared. I like that. I do too. Man, my heart breaks for you. A 12-step group to not be gay. I mean, how that's yeah. That makes me feel bad. I feel bad that you put yourself through that. Yeah, it was it was interesting. It was uh, you know, well, really I was there looking for the relapsers, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants a relapse today? Right. No. <laughs> <laughs> That couldn't have had a great success rate, that 12-step platform. No, that didn't that, that didn't last long. A friend of mine joined it. And I was like I said, I was just looking for that answer, right? right? Like there's something wrong. I know deep in my soul there's something wrong. It's not right. And all it was is, you know, all that trauma. You know, I wasn't addressing the trauma and I was still reacting to situations. And you know, it took years. And my goal in this life is I don't want it to take years for people. You know, I want people to acknowledge their trauma, work through it. And like you guys said, don't be a victim to it. Use it as rocket fuel to be the best person you can. Because like you said earlier, people lose hope in recovery. They absolutely like, I, went back, I went back to school at 30 years old. I, you know, four years sober, I went back to school and I was like, I got to do this for 10 years. I'm not going to do this for 10 years. Right. There's no way I'm going to do this for 10 years. And so I dropped out. I lost hope even in recovery. So I want to give people that hope, like work through your trauma, use that as rocket fuel. I would never change my past ever because like you said earlier, that that's our rocket fuel that develops who we are. Right. And we could do anything in this world um, as long as we keep, 
striving and pushing for ourselves. Well, and your past experience bestows upon you the expertise to help somebody else in a way that <laughs> the next man might not be able to help. Right. We're uniquely you know, you can relate, Yeah, relate to people. Uh, you know, I, I, the, the more we advertise our recovery, the more normal it becomes and people can see, okay, well, you know, Ken didn't want to be gay and he was gay and he got sober and he had this kind of trauma growing up and Daniel had this and Drew was like this. And yeah, I, I the relatability right. is, is what we can weaponize to fight addiction. Right. And I, you, you mentioned the, the, the aspect of you being gay. I wasn't going to bring it up because I don't, that's not, uh, doesn't define who we are today, who we choose to have sex with. That's just not, but there, I, I when you said that, I something came to mind that there was a um, a trans person that was on a meeting. Uh, I go to a Zoom meeting every morning in uh, in Dallas at seven thirty, and this person was talking about how um, she had a conversation with her brother, um, and her brother completely and utterly thinks that she is going to hell for her life choices. Yeah. So how, when you're in your day-to-day operations, uh, dealing with alcoholics, addicts, um, how, how, when, when someone is struggling with the, the thought that, okay, I, I am, I, I am attracted to this group of people. I can't help that. That's not something I'm choosing. And these people over here are telling me that I'm going to hell. So what do you say to those people to, to, to help them through that time in their life where, you know, they just want to be genuine people and who they are and other people are telling them they're going to hell for that. How do you help those people? Yeah, I think, you know, and that was part of my trauma too, right? Like I didn't even know that was, you know, until I was 19, I didn't even come out till I was 19, I think years old. So all of those years, you know, that's why I was effeminate, right? I was, right. you know, I was gay. And so, um, I was like, people, even in my own family, they would say, oh, you don't want to be like those faggots, right? They, my yeah. uncle worked in New York City and he's like, oh, I go down to the village and he used to build, you know, high risers and he'd be like, all these guys drag, dressed up as women, it's disgusting, you know? And then in church, they tell you, you're going to hell if you do that. And so all of those thoughts being programmed in my head, right. but like you said, I couldn't, I couldn't stop the feeling. It was right. like, so you're conflicted and those people that say those things like i know my uncle would never say that today the minute he found out i was gay he was like who the fuck cares he's like he's ken you know he was kenny he's the kid that we grew up with i don't give a shit if he's gay you know he was so accepting when he found out but the point being is um it still doesn't stop these people even in today's society in today's world people doing that like that that poor person's brother saying that, right? You're going to go to hell. What that is, is those are people that are still living in fear of differences. Right. They're, they're, they're not educated properly. They're not, they're not, you know, I don't want to say smart enough, but they don't understand the way the, the way society works. I mean, homosexuality and get, has been going on before time, right? I mean, right. it's been secret and hidden for years and, so it's been going on for before, you know, as soon as humans started, right? It's, we hear that it happened. But the point being is that, that people that are that naive and they want to believe that, let them, you know, we're never going to change their minds. 
you know, we're never going to change their mind. So I just look at them as, you know, that they, they just don't understand. Like if they were born with that, you know, if they were born with that feeling inside of them, like, you know, I love it with trans and I love trans that are coming out of the closet and they are pounding down the doors today. Right. They're like, we don't care. We're going to live the way we want to live. They're not holding back anymore. And I'm so proud of that because imagine being born in a male body. There's two males, right? To both of you, right? Right. In a male body and knowing in the core of your being that you're a female, knowing that you're, 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 you're in the wrong body. You know, imagine how hard enough that is to process that in your own brain, but then society attacking you because you know what's right in your, in your gut and your soul. Well, and society telling that you're mentally ill, that that's a, that's an yep. illness that you need to, you need to address. It's, it's difficult for me as a straight person to, to wrap my head around what that would be like. And I could see how it would be very easy to be quick to judgment and say, well, I don't know. I don't understand that. So I'm going to judge you for that because I don't understand. And I think that that in and of itself is the problem that we see today is people, like you said, just don't understand. And how could you possibly understand unless you were born that way and unless you were that way? So what it boils down to, I think, is people having the capacity capacity to be kind to people that are not like them. And I think yes. that if if we were all kind and loving and caring and understanding, I, I don't think that there would be this this um, this drama, for lack of a better term, um, uh, between people that that are trans or gay or bisexual or whatever, and and those that are born straight. It's just you know you can't control how you were born, you can't control where you were born, you can't control anything about that. And if that's something that we just we just need to practice kindness. You know, like I said, it's hard for me to understand because I'm not that. I, I wasn't born that way. But that doesn't mean that there are not people that are that way. So it, it takes it. You just have to practice kindness and be loving and caring uh, about these individuals that are not like me. And that's that's probably a good thing that everyone is not like me, because this world would be super, super boring if everyone was like me. Yeah, and, 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 go ahead. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. So the way, you know, to wrap that part up, you know, I had a friend that I got sober with, right? You know, we got put in as roommates, right? This is how, you know, if you believe in spirituality or God or whatever, you know, the universe or energy, you know, the way when I went into treatment, nobody knew I was gay, right? But I was already out then. I, I was going to the gay bars in LA, but I went into this really in Azusa, California. So it's a bunch of bikers community, you know, um, it's about an hour and a half from Los Angeles and, you know, in, in, in a rough community. So I go to this treatment center there and it's all bikers and it's all, you know, um, and this guy that they placed me as my roommate, he's a guy that's from the Latino community. He was from Mexico and um, he was born, right? This is how, if you look at it this way, right? And how, how he was created, right? Like how God created this individual. He was born with a penis and a vagina, right? Both. His parents made a decision as a, as a, as a baby 
to make him male. Like they could have made the opposite and made him a female, but they made him male. So when he got, when he went through puberty, he realized he was attracted to men. And in the Hispanic community, that's an absolutely not, you cannot be gay. So he was in this, I went to a psych hospital when I went to treatment and he was there because he tried to commit suicide because he didn't want to go against his religion and his family, but he knew in the core of his being, he was a woman. He knew, and, and the universe created him as both and the family picked the wrong one. So that's what it is, is when we're born, it doesn't matter if it's that physical where you got, you have both, or if it's in the core of your being of what you feel, it's just who we are as individuals. And if we're not like other people, like you said, if life was all, we're all the same, life would be boring. So just accepting people for who they are and what they are is the key. Because if society and his religion would have told him he was okay, because I took him to the gay bars when we got out of treatment, I took him, you know, I got him out there in our community. I said, there's nothing wrong with you. You're okay the way you are, you know. It's okay to live this way. There's a whole community that will be here for you. And he did it for like a couple months. And I would be like, I think it was like six months later. um, I was going to my grandmother's funeral or I I was, my grandmother died. I was going to visit my grandfather after she died in Florida. And he called and left me a, a, a message. And when I got back and I called, he committed suicide and died. Um, so he ended his life because of what people do. You know, that bullying, that the way you treat people, it has huge consequences on other people's lives. So stop judging, stop. You know, I'm so proud of the trans community, you know, coming out. I'm so, the gay community, you know, putting up the gay flag at the White House, all of this stuff. I'm so proud because there's nothing wrong with people, no matter what, gay, straight, color, nationality, nothing. Just stop judging people. That's where, you know, people build those tapes internally to say that we're not good enough. We're not good enough. And that's what creates addiction. That's what fuels addiction. I would, let's, it's better not creates it, but it fuels the addiction. Right. You touched on just now how, um, you know, bullying and um, negative things have almost like a ripple effect. Like it, 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 you, you really, people don't understand how detrimental it can be to another human being. And I think it's worthwhile to mention also, uh, and to point out that, uh, positive kindness also has the exact same effect. So when you're kind to one person that, that it, does in fact have a ripple effect this is science people this is science so when you're kind the person that you're kind to is going to be kind to somebody else the person they're kind to is going to be kind to somebody else and when there's a situation where they have a choice between being positive and negative well if that person that held the door and said hey you know you look really nice today thank you or or whatever the the compliment just the simple act of being kind what whatever that is it's going to play a role in the next person's life so if if you're not just a complete asshole, try to be kind to people. Try to be understanding to people. Try to be loving to people that aren't like you. And 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 just yeah. be grateful for the fact that there are different people in this world, and it makes this world a much better place as a result of the the quilt that that creates. So I, I'm I'm 
you know, I, I I'm an ally 100%. And, and I think that people who are assholes to people that are, that are, um, a member of the community, you know, I think that, that maybe you need to, need to take a step back and, and, and practice some kindness and, and maybe do some research on learning exactly what these people are going through. Um, and, and I think if you did that, you would you would quickly come to realize that these people aren't out to, to hurt you or to, to, to attract your kids or to, you know, come after your kids and all that good. No, they're just trying to be who they are fundamentally as humans. Uh, and if we can practice kindness for that, you know, the the world would be a much better place. So, all right. So we are, we are almost out of time. Um, and, and I want to thank you again so much for, for joining us, taking the time truly, to do this. Truly. Thank um, you. I, before we leave, I want to, uh, it, with, with your permission, of course, I would love for, um, us to add any information that you think would be helpful to our listener to our recovery resources page on our website. Um, and if you would uh, text me anything that you would like listed on the recovery resources website, and I will go ahead and upload that, upload that up to the website. Uh, so, so people can, can, uh, can reach out to you and, and uh, seek help if they're, if they're in need of a interventionist uh, or, or anything in, in, along those lines. So, um, Thank you so much, Ken. You're an incredible, incredible person. We're indebted to you. Thank yes, you. Yes, sir. Thank you so Truly. much. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, guys. Yes, sir. Happy to do it. And uh, and so we're, we're blessed to have you. So thank you so much. Thank you for becoming a member of the Recovery Lab community. Um, we love you, and we love everything that you're doing. So thank you so much for your time. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank we're you out. so much. We will see you next week. All right, take care. <laughs>